We are beginning a new sermon series titled Sibling Rivalry. Uh, it, we don't need a news flash to know we live in, in divisive times, and it's not just because in politically divisive times, but we just experience divisiveness. Uh, many of us know, probably most of us, probably all of us know, the pain of feeling separation and division between you and a family member, you and a friend, you and a coworker, of feeling that separation, that loss, that, that conflict that you just can't figure out how to resolve. And so we are gonna walk for the next four weeks through the story of Esau and Jacob, who obviously siblings, hence the name of the series. Um, but it's not just that they are in conflict, but the word rivalry matters because uh, rivalry is that uh, competition for the same objective or this desire for superiority over the other. Of It's not just enough to be a little better, but like I have to win. And in a world of winners and losers, it's hard to find what reconciliation looks like of what is it to come together because I feel like I've either won or lost, no matter, what the, no matter what the debate, no matter what the argument, no matter what the fight. And so what is it to look for unity uh, in the midst of very real challenges and very real struggles? And so I'm gonna kind of give you just a preview and a suggestion that uh, this series is not going to be just this, oh, unity is super easy. Come on, guys, like, let's just uh, sit in a circle and sing uh, songs of unity together and just kind of feel like it's all gonna be perfect. Um, our, our Bible is wonderful because it gives you glimpses of real-life people where it's not always super easy. It's not always just, um, just always peaceful. It's, there's conflict. And so we're going to look at the conflict and the challenges that Jacob and Esau face and hopefully see some ways to identify what's going on in our own conflicts, but also to look to what is a glimmer of hope. Where is there actually a chance of finding God and a chance for a little, even if it's just a moment of reconciliation. And so we are going to walk through this series uh, with some hope about uh, what would it be to find a, a moment like Esau and Jacob will eventually get to share, even if it's not lasting forever. And so today we're going to talk about the history of, like, we don't just enter into conflicts and struggles, like, there's societal pressures and all sorts of other things that make it more complicated than what decisions you've made or I've made. And we're going to look at the history and the story that Jacob and Esau emerge into and the conflicts that, that they are emerging into. And so to understand their story, we have to understand um, the idea that's going on in Genesis. In these early chapters of Genesis, there's this promise of blessing that through Abraham and his family, there'd be a blessing that all people might be blessed through them. Uh, but there's always these continual threats to that blessing. The initial one being, well, how am I supposed to be a blessing and all families are blessed through me if I have no children? And then there's this kind of ongoing struggle of, okay, but um, how could I have children? And, and the, he has a child with his servant and, and Ishmael is born from that and, and God is going to move through uh, a different child. And then there's the struggle and his family shuns the family, but God says, no, uh, don't worry, Hagar and Ishmael, I will make you a strong nation too. And God protects them. But there's this um, who gets to be the right family member that the blessing goes through. And so Isaac is the child who is chosen, and then Isaac has children, and there's going to be complications around his children. And, and this blessing that's promised to the family is also the kind of grounds for the conflict and the struggle and the story. And so with this hope for a blessing that a family will emerge, 
we read in Genesis 25, verses 19 through 21, these are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Laban, the Aramean. Now, just kind of hold that for a few weeks. Uh, Rebekah's uh, brother is Laban, and we'll see Laban a little bit later in the story. And it says, Then Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. So it's kind of like, all right, let's do a summary version of the story you've already heard of uh, longing to have a child and not being able to have one. They go to God, then there's going to be a child. So it seems like that just should be celebratory blessings. Yay, God has, has given us a child. And how quickly the story is like, this isn't what I signed up for. Of how many times in our lives do we long for certain blessings and when it gets tough, when the road gets challenging, when there's struggles and when there's resistance and pushback, like maybe I don't really want this that much. And so it says in the text that uh, the children were struggling together within her. And Rebecca said, if this is to be the way, why do I live? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, it's a little bit different in the ancient world. You don't have these sonograms and can easily get told things of, hey, you're having twins, here's what to expect. And she's like, man, this is, this is rough. You know, I wanted this thing for so long, and um, if, if this is going to be the way, why on earth am I having to go through this? And she went to God. And I think that that's a great just kind of lesson to take of no matter what you're going through, uh, when the struggles get too much for you, uh, even if it's coming from a place of frustration, like, God, what's going on here? Uh, show up to God, ask the question. Uh, it's worth not running away from God or running away from what God might be taking you, but pray and ask, God, uh, what's going on here? And so is this blessing really worth it? Uh, is life really worth the pains that I'm going to be going through? And we follow a Christian story that is filled with that message of, of that the life and the resurrection is also the life on the other side of, of crosses and tombs. And so is it really worth it? And Rebecca hears from God in the story. And this is one of the first things I want to say of if you're in the midst of conflict, in the midst of what do I do, figuring out what God has to say about it is obviously very important. Uh, but it's not super easy. Uh, we don't necessarily know in the text that this is just an audible thing or, or is God writing things down or like in what way does this message get communicated to Rebecca? It's not quite exact about it. Um, but she gets a message from God. It might have been helpful maybe if Isaac had also gotten this message from God, uh, but maybe you've experienced when someone in your life says, you know, God told me, sometimes you have a little red flag come up and you're like, I don't know whether to accept this or not. <laughs> I don't know how to, to trust whether God actually told you this or not. And so while Rebecca hears a word from God, and especially this word might govern the way you read all of the next chapters of the story, know that this is her word and it is not easily accessible or known to anybody else in the story. And so God says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. Uh, I mentioned not everybody knows this message, but you know, how does Rebecca even understand the message? Sometimes we hear words and we're not sure even what to do with them, what to make sense of them, how to respond to them. Um, there's some actual debate of even like the language of this, this, this translation. 
uh, makes it seem like the elder shall serve the younger. The Hebrew is ambiguous where you could read it either direction. Someone is serving someone, and based on the way we read this, this text, we assume that, of course, it means Jacob, because we all identify with Jacob. He's the bigger name in the story. Um, but it seems like from the story later, Rebecca certainly thinks it means Jacob shall, shall be the one who the older one serves. Uh, but she is comforted that, okay, I at least have a sense of my understanding. Uh, I, I've got two kids in here, and these kids will both be powerful nations, and there will be struggles, and I'm feeling a little bit of what that struggle feels like, um, but I have a sense of what God might be telling me in the midst of that. Uh, what's hard is, it's hard um, to end kind of conflict and struggles just by uh, just this declaration of God, because like I said earlier, how do you tell anybody else about this, and does anyone else get on board with it? And the truth is, is when we have conflicts and struggles, oftentimes in our context, both groups who are in conflict and struggle will both say, God is on my side. Both will say, God has said to me. Both will say, here's what God says to this situation. And so what gets challenging for us as Christians is we think, well, simply, why can't we just quote God and that'll just resolve all of our issues? And maybe you've heard someone say things like, if people would just read the Bible, and you're like, man, everybody's in this conflict is reading the Bible and saying very different things, and it's not so easy to just say, just go read the Bible. Uh, and so I, I can't help but think about what is it for sibling rivalry and conflict and invoking God and, and that God is on the side of one versus the other. Uh, and think about a particular moment in our history. I've been reading through Mark Knowles' The Civil War as Theological Crisis, which is actually quite fascinating. Uh, looking at a time in, like, obviously one of the darkest, if not the darkest time in our own nation's history, uh, and looking at how the Bible and Christianity was used in the midst of that conflict, and that both sides thought they were marching uh, with God on their side. And even more complicated than that, than that, you know, it wasn't just in the 1860s, all that time leading up to it, uh, the Christian conversation of, uh, should we be abolitionist or not? Is slavery God-ordained or not? And I think from our vantage point, it feels so, of course, certain, why did it take people so long? And yet in that moment, so many Christians uh, saw that their Bible was not in favor of abolitionist movement and actually um, pushed it on to the abolitionist of saying, you know, you're really having to go against a lot of Scripture to have that perspective. And so you have Christians in the North and the South arguing even within themselves of what to do. Um, and it is from our vantage point that it seems obvious, and of course, but in the midst of a Bible that just has a lot of slavery happening, or, or Paul saying, hey, you know, if you're enslaved, don't, you know, just stay as you are, things like that, that there's a glimmer of a trajectory of Scripture, that there's a hope of something more than where they were at in that moment, when Paul says things like we're no longer uh, Jew or Gentile, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female, that there's this hope that this identity in Christ will will at some point take us out of the destructive structures that we're in. And in Revelation, when all of the businessmen of the world are mourning because the nations have fallen and their commerce has fallen and it lists all of their industries that, they've lose, that they're losing, and that list ends with, and human bodies, that humans were being sold. In the midst of that struggle, uh, the Bible was used by both sides. 
And if you know uh, American Baptist history, uh, in a time frame in which it wasn't named American Baptist and it wasn't named Southern Baptist, uh, you know, but Baptist in the United States, um, Baptist in the North decided if you own slaves, you could no longer be a missionary. We no longer accept it. And that is what led to Baptists in the South breaking off, starting their own affiliation, uh, which would later become the Southern Baptist Convention. Both groups feeling very strongly, of course God is on my side. And so it, it's just a reminder of the messiness of the conflicts that we're in, um, that yes, discern where God is, but know that it's not so easy as simply, I can throw a Bible verse out at you and suddenly this conflict will be resolved. Uh, and, and in fact, the way we use the Bible will be taken as a part of the conflict and a part of the struggle. And part of that emerges from the fact, and you might have even heard it of how I kind of framed it for you, and maybe because of Civil War it gets framed that way for you in, in your brain, but we get into binaries. Things are either automatically, of course, yes or no, north or south, God's on my side or your side. Not the complicatedness of, yes, there's a certain angle of justice that maybe we see God is at work in, and yet God is at work in the midst of both groups. And can we handle the complicatedness and the messiness of the fact that God is able to handle that and to work in the midst of that? And so when we think about those binaries and we think about those words that this text said, that inside you are two nations, it's so easy when you think about these twins of you got this one or that one, and you start thinking in this or that, and there's a lot of destructive things that emerge. And these two children that are divided are going to be treated differently by their families, and they're going to be treated differently by the church and the way that they interpret these two, these two children. Uh, even in our Bible, uh, Paul in Romans, maybe you might know this phrasing, in Romans 9.13 says, as it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. And we take that notion and push it on to these two individuals in the story. And he's not actually quoting Genesis. He's quoting Malachi and some of the minor prophets who speak metaphorically about the nation states of Israel and Judah and the nation of Edom, uh, kind of descendants of Esau, of, of rejecting what the nation was doing. Uh, but we read that onto these two children, that one of them is, of course, right and one, of course, wrong, and one is loved and one is hated. And here's some of the ways that the early church talked about this text of kind of metaphorically reading these two children. Um, this one is from Caesareus, um, who lived around late 400s, early 500s in, in France, in modern-day France. Here's how he talked about these two children. Therefore, Rebecca and her body conceived of blessed Isaac, blessed Isaac, because the church was going to conceive spiritually of Christ. Moreover, just as two children struggled in Rebecca's womb, so two peoples continually oppose each other in the church's womb. If there were only wicked or only good persons, there would be just one people. And the church, so much the worse, good and bad people are found. Two people struggling as in the womb of the spiritual Rebecca. The humble indeed and the proud, the chaste and the adulterous, the meek and the irascible, the kind and the envious, the merciful and the avaricious. Of, that there's, just, there's two ways of being. You're either the good or the bad. And it goes on to talk about the fruits of people like Esau, and it talks about the works of the flesh, and the fruits of people like Jacob, who are like works of the Spirit. And the, the St. Augustine goes in the same route, in that one womb, 
one for good and one for evil. Uh, but what's interesting is, at least in their binary, they at least turn it into the church, of even within our insider group. So at least there's a binary that's, that's at least a little bit self-focused of how do I critique myself? But when we take a lens of there's just either the good or the bad, we end up pushing people into separate camps where that they just, what's the chance of reconciliation when I've divided you already? Uh, what's the chance to see the world in a different lens? Where is there a chance for nuance? Where's a chance for there to be one of us instead of one of them? And so in the midst of these binaries, we can't see what reconciliation looks like because we dig in our heels, because we identify with one group or the other. And once you have binaries, you have favoritism. And we see all sorts of favoritism in this story. And like, we can read over this text, but think about how tragic and painful uh, it is for Genesis 25, 28 to say, Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Uh, I, I feel for you if you've experienced that in your own family lives where you could say, this person got a love I didn't get, or I got a love that this person didn't get. When you start splitting people into binaries and someone gets loved and someone gets let, left out. And so they're, they're favoriting, this favoritism is singling out who gets love and it causes damage. And you think about on the small end of the ways that we have favoritism of, of you know, you know, just even how simple of a conflict it is if you're a married couple and one of you loves one kind of food and one of you loves something else. And how do you pick the meal plans for your weekly basis? Um, but teachers, how hard is it to impartially uh, care for all of your students uh, that treat them all the same even when some of them don't treat you the same? How hard is it as a parent of uh, there are moments where it's harder to love all of your children the same uh, when they've lashed out at you, when they're pushing you away. How hard is it to keep that, uh, that inclination towards favoritism of somebody uh, from, from taking hold of us? And so when we have conflicts, think about, am I playing favorites? Am I loving somebody differently than I'm loving somebody else? And so am I loving everyone? And I think it's interesting to know how this favoritism emerged in the story. There are some stereotypes, some things that people are living into, and that kind of makes you resonate with someone or not resonate with someone. And it says in the text a little bit of why Jacob and Esau are loved differently by their parents. It says in Genesis 25, 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he was fond of game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The scripts that people are placed upon, you know, that I have to live up to this story of what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be ladylike. We give these scripts to people, and whether they live up to them as well as others, we decide who's our favorite, who lives up to the scripts that we want them to live up to. And so we, we have these preferences that end up splitting people apart. And so we have situations where uh, maybe you've seen in, in yourself or in those close to you or, or afar, uh, where when men are told things like, you know, don't show any emotions, that's not manly, and then suddenly it's pent up and then it becomes anger and rage that just bursts out in a moment. 
Why are we giving you a script that is causing toxicity in you, that's, that's harming you? Or what is it if you're like Jacob and you're not fitting that script? He's not the hunter out in the field. Like, suddenly that means you're less than, that you don't really get to resonate with your father? Uh, the, the stereotypes, the, the scripts we place on people cause the frictions that we experience. So what if Esau loves being in the fields and hunting? Great for him. So what if Jacob likes being indoors in the tents? Great for him. Why should our love for them be based on the way that they live up to, to our images and our stories that we want people to be as? And so our stereotypes feed into the binaries that we create, whether you're an insider or an outsider with us. And I talk, want to talk about one more thing that this text alludes to. Um, there's a lot of privilege in the story that we don't, maybe we don't name it as that. Uh, but there's a lot of conversation around, you know, privilege in life of, of not having to worry about some things that you just kind of get things based on who you are. And, and sometimes it's hard for us to see those things. But let's just frame it as this. We're going to hear Esau and talk about a birthright. And that because of when he was born, suddenly he deserves things in society. Suddenly he deserves his parents' property. He deserves certain respect simply based on his timing of birth. And so here this glimpse of a story that we'll talk more about their conflicts and the way that they fight next week, but, but think about the way in which just they are born into this conflict comes out in the story. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in the field and he was famished, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, for I am famished. And Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and, and he ate and drank, and he rose and went away, and then Esau despised his birthright. This culture assumed just because you were born first, you deserved uh, the estate, the power, the honor. And Esau doesn't notice it. He doesn't notice this privilege in his life. Uh, because it's just given to him. Like, why does he need to think about his birthright? He's just got it. He's not spending his life thinking about it. And so, for, if you're Esau, if you've got the privilege, you don't notice it. But Jacob sure did. If life doesn't feel fair, if someone has this opportunity that just you have no chance of, you're aware of some dynamic in the room that the other might not even notice. And I think sometimes we get into uncomfortableness because we get it. Everybody's life is hard. If you ever hear anybody talk about privilege, no one is saying that life isn't hard. It's just sometimes we get certain opportunities just based on uh, how we were born, what we look like, where we were born. Maybe a, a safe way of talking about that for many of us is uh, if you've ever said, I am so grateful because I was born here. And that as an American, I have so much freedom and opportunity and, and chance. And you're saying that that's that way as opposed to someone else who was born somewhere else, elsewhere. Um, you did nothing to choose where you were born. It, it's just a privilege of the place and way that you were born. You don't notice it as much because it's just your story. Esau doesn't notice his birthright because it's just his story. And it's not until it's taken away from him because Jacob realizes it's something he wants. I wish that was my life. 
that now he despises the birthright altogether. It's like, wait a minute, what's this whole birthright thing? And suddenly Esau's kind of late to the party of not liking the whole birthright thing. Um, There are conflicts that we might not even understand are going on about our lives because we don't notice them. Sometimes we're the Esau in the story who, who doesn't realize what we have. Sometimes we're the Jacob in the story who feels that that frustration of why is society set up this way? And no matter what angle we want to take into the dynamics of this conflict that these two brothers have, whether it's how do I understand who God is or how do I understand this kind of binary thinking or favoritism of who gets love or the stereotypes or, or the privilege, all of it eventually comes back down to a perspective of scarcity. That God only has so much love. You know, of course, God can only love this group and not that one. Or that we only have so much love. Or there's only enough blessings to go to one group or the other. Or my group has all of the right beliefs and, beliefs and you have none of the right beliefs. Of the scarcity and the struggle and the winner and loser fight and the rivalry that emerges from that vantage point. And so when faced with those conflicts, we should ask ourselves, where is God in the midst of this fight? Where is God in the midst of this? Because God is always bigger than our imagination. Where is God, uh, like the one that we see through Christ Jesus, when talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, uh, rejects this kind of long infighting between Jewish and Samaritans of, uh, it doesn't matter which mountain you worship on, you're having the wrong argument. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth. Both ways are misguided. There's another way. And we get stuck and entrenched. How can we look to God to take us out of that entrenchment? And so I want to just invite you to some call to action, conclusion, kind of what can I do? What can I start to do? Uh, Because we're not on on the end game of reconciliation at this point in the series. But can we begin to identify some things in our struggles? If you have a a literal brother or sister that you're at, you're at odds with, uh, which is very painful. It is painful to not feel like you can reach out to someone who means so much to you. If you're in the midst of a struggle with a coworker, with a neighbor, uh, with someone at church, whoever it is, spend some time taking an inventory about this dilemma. What are some assumptions I have? What are some motivations I have? What are some factors leading into this friction? Not just an inventory of the other person, an inventory of ourselves. Learn about yourself. Learn about the other person. Ultimately, we all need to ask, where is God in the midst of this? Are we willing to be open to the possibility that God might not be where we expect God to be? Enter in with with open hands and trust to where God might be. And that's just the beginning. Just being open. Uh, Because it's hard to find healing if we're not willing to talk about what the actual injury, what the actual sickness is. And so on this path towards reconciliation, in the midst of the ugliness, which next week we're going to see some of that play out in the way that they, they kind of have their breaking moment. I thought it might be meaningful to conclude with uh, another church theologian, um, Origen, who, who talks about this binaries, but not just about outsiders, but makes it about us. Because we need to admit that we are a part of our own struggle, that we aren't always living up to what we want to be on our end of the struggle. 
And so hear this struggle from within us. Origen says, quote, I think that this can be said also of each of us as individuals. Each of us as individuals that two nations and two peoples are within you. For there is a people of virtue within us and a people that is no less a people of vice within us. For from our heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, thefts, false testimonies, but also deceits, contentions, heresies, jealousies, revelings, and such like that. Do you see how great a people of evil is, is within us? But if we should deserve to utter that word of the saints, from fear of you, Lord, we have conceived in the womb and have brought forth, we have wrought the spirit of your salvation on the earth, thus another people begotten of the spirit is found within us. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, temperance, and purity, and so forth. You see, another people is within us, but this, one is, uh, but this one is less, that one is greater. For there are always more evil than good people, and vices more numerous than virtues. But if we should be such as Rebecca, and should deserve to conceive from Isaac, that is from the word of God, one people shall overcome the other, and the elder shall serve the younger." even in us, for the flesh shall serve the spirit and the vices shall yield to virtues. All of that to say, spend some time in prayer and reflect on your own place in the midst of struggles and fights and challenges that you're going through. Identify yourself within some of the, the, the wrongness of those challenges and long to cultivate God's work of the spirit in you uh, because how are we going to reconcile with others if we aren't reconciling to God? May we seek after God's healing and God's fruits of the Spirit that we might choose to cultivate that aspect of our lives. And so may we all start this journey of healing with a thought inward to inspect ourselves and to long for God's healing for us, not just for those around us. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we might be unaware of this privilege that we have to just come before you freely. Lord, that we have the opportunity to worship with you. Uh, and, and Lord, with that opportunity, we, we admit that we don't always come to worship you as we should. There are times where we choose other things in our lives than worship. Lord, help us to reflect on the great blessings that you have, have promised. May we take up uh, the task of, of being about being in that blessing to those around us. Lord, may we help and bring your reconciliating power uh, to the world around us that we might not cause more pain, but we might bring healing. Lord, help us to see the world with your eyes and not the eyes that separate us out into winners and losers. Lord, may we take our comfort in resting in you no matter what pains we are going through. Lord, may you be with those who have the real pain of, of not being able to speak with their, with their family members, with their coworkers, with their lifelong friends who they now find at odds with themselves and may there be healing that is possible. Lord, we need you and it's in your name that we pray, amen.